0: What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Maylari. So here we are, live in the WZBC studio tonight, as always, every single Tuesday night from 7 to 8 o'clock, bringing you an hour of sports, whether it's Boston sports or just sports in general, across the all, all four major sports leagues. Here we are live. I'm going to start off talking about the NBA. I'm going to start off with the Clippers and their big signing, which just happened yesterday. A big acquisition for their lineup, one of my favorite players is now an L.A. Clipper, and I couldn't be more excited. So I saved that. I was going to talk about it on my podcast yesterday. I had a busy day yesterday, though. I had an exam today that I had to study for all day yesterday and even woke up early today to study for, it too, as well. So I didn't get to record an episode yesterday when it happened. I usually like doing, like, a breaking news episode whenever something big happens like that, especially to the degree it was for me, knowing that Russell Westbrook, who is an L.A. Clipper now, is one of my favorite basketball players. So just seeing him in a clip of his uniform is going to be unreal. Uh, and I wanted to do an episode yesterday as I said, just got too busy studying, so I never got to it, unfortunately. But I'm happy to be able to give you uh, my thoughts on that signing. I'm going to start off with that. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about the NBA breakdown, NBA All-Star Weekend. I'll talk about the NBA All-Star game and the defense, which uh, there was a lack thereof. I mean, there's no defense at all. I feel like anybody could have been out there and, and, and made a couple shots with... No defense at all. I'm going to talk about Mike Malone's comments, Jalen Brown's comments, and Stephen A. Smith's comments. I'll talk about all three of those and give my thoughts on what each of those three people had to say about the All-Star game overall. In addition to that, I am going to move on from that after and talk about uh, the All-Star game in other sports. So I'm going to talk about the NBA and what they did and talk about the NFL and how the Pro Bowl was a little bit different this year, a little bit different format, but it was better than it was in years past. And obviously, the Pro Bowl is a lot different than the NBA. The football is a lot more physical, so you have to figure out a way to make sure the players can stay safe. And at the end of the day, that's what they ultimately chose to do the NFL into making it a flag football game since no players really want to hit, especially after the season ends. Nobody wants to risk getting an injury going into the offseason, then potentially miss time going into next season for just a meaningless all star game. So, I give my thoughts on the all star games overall. And then after that, I'll move on to talk about the NFL. I'll talk about Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley, talk about the Patriots and potential targets for them in free agency. And i also talk about some news across the NFL, where Aaron Rodgers is going to end up, where Lamar Jackson is going to end up, is Justin Fields going to be traded, is he going to stay in Chicago. I'm going to break all that down. Probably at the end of the episode, and then also I'll talk about some college hockey as well, uh, with Northeastern getting a couple big wins over the weekend, or one big win over the weekend, obviously winning the Beanpot last weekend, but they beat the University of Vermont on Saturday night at Vermont at the Gunnison Fields House. I was there with Mark Walsh, Cap Curley, Joey Hosey, Paul Girard, and Ryan Walsh. All five of those guys there with me at the game. So we had six of us at the game, which was awesome. Obviously a big crew uh, with all of us being there. But it was an awesome game to see. Pretty cool to be on the road, too, uh, and see a Northeastern game. Not at Matthews Arena, not at Conti Forum, not at the Gannis Arena. It's cool to see a different rank you've never seen before. So Northeastern got a big win uh, in that game. I'll talk about that. Talk about BC Hockey. They're actually on a three-game win streak right now. They're starting to get hot as well. And there's still a lot of time left in the season. Even though it's four games left, the reason why I say there's a lot of time is because you still have some games that you can make a run of the Hockey East Tournament. BC probably has to win the Hockey East Tournament to try to make uh, the Frozen Four Tournament since they probably won't be a bid, an at-large bid in the pairwise rankings, but... Realistically, for Northeastern, though, it helps having the Hockey East tournament since even if they were not to win the Hockey East tournament, if they go on a run and maybe make the semifinals like they did last year, they probably will make it in yet again. So there's only four games left in the regular season for all of those teams uh, in the Hockey East. Northeastern will be playing U.S. Amherst a home and away. Home uh, on Saturday night at Matthews Arena. Friday night will be at U.S. Amherst. And then BC will be playing this weekend as well, I believe, against UMaine on the road, both the games. Friday and Saturday. Yes, Friday at uh, Alphand Arena and Saturday as well, both those games in Orono, Maine. And then BC will be home, uh, or won't be home, excuse me, Northeast will be home Saturday night versus US Amherst. The first game will be Mullen Center on Friday night, and then Northeast will be home on Saturday night, February 25th. I'll talk about some college talk at the end as I'm talking about obviously the NFL as well. Those will be probably quick-heading topics. I'm going to start off with the NBA. I'm going to talk about Russell Westbrook and what I believe he breaks this clip, his lineup. And I'll start off with this. Everybody knows from listening to my podcast or listening to my radio show last year or listening to this radio show as well, or you just know me in general, and you, you, even if you haven't listened to my podcast and my radio shows, everybody knows I'm a huge Russell Westbrook fan. And that's something I've never, I've never tried to hide. I mean, at the end of the day, even when Russ was struggling I stayed with Russ every step of the way. Every step of the way I stayed with Russell Westbrook. Through all the ups and downs, through all the criticism from everyone on ESPN to Fox Sports to everyone online to Twitter. I mean, I've never seen an athlete get criticized as much as Russell Westbrook did. I mean, it was like every time the guy missed a shot, if you went on Twitter, it would be all over Twitter and everyone would be retweeting it and calling it Westbrook. And in in making fun of him for taking a tough shot and obviously missing it. At the end of the day, basketball players are going to miss shots. That's a reality. Jason Tatum bricks a couple threes every night. No one talks about that. That's not on Twitter. That's never on Twitter. No one's ever talking about that. But when Russell Westbrook makes a miss, it's shouted at the rooftop. It's shouted mountains and mountains high every time Russell Westbrook makes a miss. The criticism Russell Westbrook gets is exponential compared to any player in the NBA. And that's why I'm excited to see him in a new environment on the Clippers. Think about this: he's he's from LA, right? He grew up in California, went to high school in California, grew up in Long Beach, California. That's where he's born. Went to UCLA, tried to go to the Lakers. Thought maybe you know he could maybe win a championship in LA. Growing up, being a California player, a uh, California kid, you probably want to win a championship for your home state, right? That's just a reality. Obviously, it didn't work out for the Lakers, and I don't blame Russell Westbrook for that. I don't. I think there's a lot of factors that went into that team not getting to where everyone thought they would. Maybe let's talk about LeBron James and Anthony Davis being hurt for a lot of last year. They could never stay on the floor and never be healthy. Russell Westbrook played just about every single game last year. 78 games before, I believe, the last three games of the season they shut him down. But he finished last season averaging 18 points a game, 18.5 points, 7.4 rebounds, 7.1 assists, a steal per game, and shooting 29.8% from three and 44% from the floor. Obviously, if you look at those stats, yes, You don't want him shooting 29.8% from three and 44% from the floor. But if you look at what he was heading into last year, his overall stats, that's right around where he was for his career. He's a 43.7% shooter from the floor. Last year, he was 44.4%. So he was actually better last year shooting than he was over his career. And he shot over his career before last season, heading into last year in L.A., he shot 30.5% from three, and then last year in LA in his first season, shot just 29.8%. So he's around his career average. And even this year, he's shooting 29.6%. So a lot of people come at him for that. But if you look at his stats, even in, the, in his MVP season, 2016, 2017, he wasn't shooting that great from the floor. I mean, 34.3% from three was, I believe, his career best. Yes, his career best was that season, but he still only shot 42.5% from the floor. But he was averaging 31.6 points per game. Obviously, he was taking a lot more shots per game. He took 24 uh, field goals a night, 24 field goal attempts per night, which is actually his most in his NBA career. This year is actually his lowest, second lowest, that is, with 14 field goal attempts per game. And I think part of the reason Russell Westbrook never was comfortable in L.A. was, first off, as I said, LeBron James and Anthony Davis were always hurt. That's a reality. Nobody can really argue that. LeBron James and Anthony Davis were hurt for a lot of last season. Yes, this season, for the most part, LeBron James is healthy. He did miss some games as well. But he's more healthy this season than he was last season. And Anthony Davis will always have his injuries. That's just a reality as well. But for Russell Westbrook, he showed up every single night last year. Whether or not he played great, yes, I get it. He might not have had his best games. He might not be the player he once was in 2016 and 2017. But if you look at Russell Westbrook and the effort he gives every single night, one thing that's undeniable is all the effort that he gives on a nightly basis. Every single time Russell Westbrook checks into the game, you know you're getting everything out of him. 100% 100% on offense, 100% on defense. Whether he misses a shot or he doesn't have a great defensive possession, you know, always get back on defense or always get back on offense and drive down the lane full speed that next play. And now if you look at Twitter as well, as I said, every time he missed a shot, it was just all over the internet. Every time, everyone was just waiting for this guy's downfall. Everyone was waiting for him to brick a shot all night so they could throw it on Twitter. But where were all the haters when Russell Westbrook was great off the bench at year for L.A.? No one talks about that. No one talks about Russell Westbrook driving for the Lakers off the bench. Because why would they? Everyone wants to see a guy like Russell Westbrook feel because you can hit him when he's down. It's so easy to hit a player when he's down when everyone all over social media and every single sports reporter and sports analyst in the sports world is coming out. It's a lot easier to hit him when he's down. And a lot of players that get that criticism, I tend to root for. Daniel Jones, I was always a fan of which I think I became more a fan of him because everyone was always hating on him and he was showing up to the facility every single day at 6 or 7 a.m., the first player in the facility and the last player out every single morning, every single night during the season over the last few years. So I saw that work ethic and I saw what he was doing on the field. I didn't blame Dana Jones for all the inconsistency around him and all the ineptitude from the front office. I don't blame Dana Jones for any of that over his career. Similar to Russell Westbrook. You can't really blame for every single thing that happened in L.A. He was a scapegoat for everything that went wrong in L.A. He was a scapegoat. And a lot of people look at that trade package that Washington received for Russell Westbrook. Yeah, that was a lot. But at the end of the day, you got to look at it. LeBron James signed off on that. There's no trade that the Los Angeles Lakers will make, nor will there be a signing that the Lakers make nor will there be a sign that the Lakers make that LeBron James will not sign off on. I just repeated what I just said a second ago since my recording stopped uh, just a second ago, so I apologize for repeating. But there's not going to be a sign that the Lakers make that LeBron James isn't with. And so that Russell Westbrook trade, LeBron James 100% signed off on that. So we're going to talk about the Lakers front office and how they failed LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Well, LeBron James and Anthony Davis definitely signed off on getting Russell Westbrook. And if you look at the Western Conference and what they were, what the Lakers looked like a couple of years ago after they won the finals... That was a broken team in 2020. A broken team in 2020, 2021, that season. So the latest thought was thoughts were was okay, let's trade what we have left, all the dead weight we have, Montrez Harrell, Catavis Caldwell Pope, Kyle Kuzma, even though Kyle Kuzma's playing pretty well this year for Washington. Let's trade all those pieces and let's get Russell Westbrook. Since what Russell Westbrook was doing in Washington in 2020 and 2021, that season, that one season he was in Washington, his age 32 season, he played very well. 22.2 points per game, 11.5 rebounds per game, and 11.7 assists per game. And that was actually Russell Westbrook's fifth season, or fourth season that is, averaging a triple-double over his career. That's pretty impressive. Four seasons he had in the NBA over a five-year period re averaged a triple-double. From 2016 to 2021. So nobody can deny Russell Westbrook's talent. And nobody can deny what he gives you on a nightly basis. If you look at Russell Westbrook's last game with the Lakers. Which came a few weeks ago now. When LeBron James broke the scoring record. in uh, The all-time NBA scoring record. As a member of the Lakers. Obviously being able to break that. When Kareem Abdul-Jabbar held the record. Obviously that's monumental on its own. But... I think Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, everybody wanted to win that game too. Even though LeBron James breaking that record is obviously a great accomplishment. LeBron James is the greatest of all time, in my opinion. You still want to win that game. And do you know the only player playing in the fourth quarter at the end of that game that was trying hard was Russell Westbrook. They lost to the Thunder that night. This was February 7th, so two weeks ago from tonight, actually, on the dot. Westbrook finished that game 10-19 from the floor, 4-7 from 3, 8 assists, 4 rebounds, 2 steals, and a block to go along with 27 points in 28 minutes of action. And he had 14 points, I believe, in the fourth quarter. That was his last game as an LA Laker, and he was given everything he had because obviously he wanted LeBron James to win on the night that he broke the NBA all-time scoring record. So I don't blame Russell Westbrook for everything that went wrong in LA. There was a lot of things wrong with that team. From having the wrong head coach, Frank Vogel might not have been the problem, but he might not have been the solution either. They did win an NBA Finals with them. But he might not have been the solution with the team they had. You had Anthony Davis, LeBron James, always hurt. You had a lack of shooting. LeBron James had no three-point three point shooters around him. So it forced some bad shots late in games. And if you look at the Lakers team now, they, that's what they did at the trade them. They went and got some guys that could shoot, D'Angelo Russell included. They started getting some shooters around LeBron James. And do you know where Russell Westbrook's going now? The L.A. Clippers who are 5th in the NBA field goal percentage from 3. 5th in 3-point field goal percentage in the NBA this season. So now Russell Westbrook will have a chance to thrive. He'll be able to drive and kick it out. And he'll have shooters over on the perimeter, including Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Norman Powell, among others, Nick Batum, just to name a few, Terrence Mann. He's going to have options when he drives down the lane. And that's one thing Russell Westbrook still does. He, he can still get to the cup just as good as anyone. Whether he finishes or not, Obviously, doesn't happen every single time he gets to the rim. Where he finishes, obviously, is a question. But the way he throws himself in air still and will go up in the air and around guys, every single layup he takes, on the most part, is never easy because he's doing an acrobatic move in air. So that's one thing that field goal percentage doesn't account for. It doesn't account for the difficulty of the shot that Russell Westbrook does take a long time. Yes, his pull-up game from three and his jump shot isn't great, but a lot of his layups are still tough shots. Because he's driving full force down the lane, going around a couple guys in and taking contact at the same time. But now I'm going to talk about how Russell Westbrook fits in this Clippers system and why I'm not worried at all. I think this is a huge signing for the Clippers. And if you look at my favorite players in the NBA, my top three are all LA Clippers. Paul George, Terrence Mann, and Russell Westbrook, all three of them, are now on the Clippers. And my top three after that, my bottom three after that, I guess, my next three, I should say, not my bottom three... My next three after that, four through six, De'Aaron Fox, Tyler Hero, and LeBron James. So there you go. There's my top three and my next three. I love Tyler Hero. I love LeBron James. And I love De'Aaron Fox. And Jimmy Butler's in that conversation as well. And there's probably some plays I'm missing as well since it's tough to really think on the spot here who your favorite players are. Those are my top three. Right there. And they're all on the Clippers. Terrence Mann, Paul George, and Russell Westbrook. And one thing people tend to forget is that the last time Paul George and Russell Westbrook were on the same team, Paul George averaged career highs in points per game, rebounds per game, steals per game, three-pointers made, and free throws made. And he was also the steals leader in the NBA that season, first-team All-NBA and All-NBA defense that year. So Paul George thrived... With Russell Westbrook, thrived. And this all came in the uh, 2018 2019 season. His second year in OKC before getting moved or to the LA Clippers. yeah, getting moved into trade with LA. That season in Oklahoma City, 77 games played, averaged 28 points per game, along with 8.2 rebounds, 4.1 assists, 2.2 steals. To go along, 48.4% shooting from the two-point range, 38.6% from three, and 43.8% from the floor overall. And Russell Westbrook was great that season as well. In that season, 2018-2019, he averaged 22.9 points per game, 10.7 assists, 11.1 rebounds, shooting 29% from three, and 42.8% from the floor overall. Also picking up 1.9 steals per game. So Russell Westbrook and LeBron James, and Russell Westbrook, excuse me, and Paul George played very well together. The last time they were on the same team in 2018, 2019. In 145 games together, two seasons where Russell Westbrook and Paul George were together. Russell Westbrook averaged 24.1 points per game, 10.5 rebounds, 10.5 assists, 1.9 steals, and was a one-time All-NBA second-team selection. Paul George in that same 145 game stint. 24.8 points per game, 6.8 rebounds, 3.6 assists, 2.1 steals, a one-time All-NBA first team, one-time one-time All-NBA defensive first team, 2018-2019 steals champion. In the 2018-2019 uh, season, he was an MVP finalist. And you look at Russell Westbrook's career overall, and this is what he did with Paul George, and obviously they had a lot of success together in OKC in those two seasons. But you look at Russell Westbrook's career overall, 2016-2017 MVP, Was on the NBA 75th anniversary team. He's one of the best players to ever do it. 1,000% is a Hall of Fame player. Three-time NBA assist champion. Nine-time All-NBA selection. Two-time scoring champ. And a nine-time All-Star selection in the NBA with two All-Star game MVPs. Russell Westbrook has had a storied career. And he may not be the player he once was, but the Clippers don't need that. They don't need him to be taking the tough shots with a minute to go that he took in Oklahoma City in that 2016-2017 season, which in that season, it felt like Russell Westbrook, every time he took a clutch three, he drilled it. But to point out, one thing that ESPN said was that Russell Westbrook's willingness to fit a role in the Clippers system was built around his playmaking, rebounding, and his toughness. And I'll add in everything he gives every single night. Russell Westbrook's ambition on the floor every single night and his relentless effort – is definitely something that will add to this Clippers team. And I've talked about the Clippers being all dogs. Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Norman Powell, Terrence Mann, Robert Covington. I've talked about them all being dogs now for a couple of years. And Russell Westbrook fits that Clipper mentality that that the rest of those players have. And Robert Covington, Eric Gordon, both those guys are teammates with him in Houston. They're both happy to have him back in LA, having him on the same team. Now they're happy to have him back in the same locker room. And then you also have Paul George, who was a former teammate of him as well. As I said, they thrive together. So I'm excited to see what he brings to this team. And we'll see what it looks like, what the rotations look like. As of now, the plan is that he's going to start off the bench and then make his way into the starting lineup. And one thing I want to add is, when he makes his move to the starting lineup, I don't want to take Terrence Mann out of the starting lineup. I want Terrence Mann to stay in the starting lineup. Because Terrence Mann, Paul George, and Kawhi Leonard just started finding their, their chemistry together with all three of those guys on the floor. With Terrence Mann, Paul George, and Kawhi landed in the same lineup, they have a 126.8 offensive rating, a 61.1% effective field goal percentage, a 52.4% field goal percentage, a 42.6% uh, three-point field goal percentage, and are a plus 42 in 284 minutes of action. So one thing the Clippers can't do is split up those three guys. But one thing they can do is take Marcus Morris out of the starting lineup and have Russell Westbrook at the one, Terrence Mann at the two, Paul George at the three, Kawhi Landon at the four, and Evita Zubats at the five, with Norman Powell as the six coming off the bench, with Eric Gordon, Marcus Morris, Nick Batum, Bones Highland, Miles Plumley all coming off the bench. Mason Plumley, excuse me, not Miles Plumley. But they could use help off the bench. So Russell Westbrook starting off the bench isn't the worst thing. But I think he will make his his time off the bench valuable and then will end up making a jump to the starting lineup. So we'll see how he gels. I'm not worried too too much at all. If you look at this clip, his team, they're absolutely stacked. And they're just starting to find their footing, winning 10 of the last 14 games. Before that stretch, I believe they lost 8 or 9 of their last 11 heading into that stretch. Now, in the last 14 games since that 11-game stretch, have won 10 of 14 games heading into the all-star break. So they're just starting to find their footing and now the Clippers big three, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Russell Westbrook, even though I don't really want to call it a big three since that's what John Wall was supposed to be. I think at the end of the day, the Clippers just have to be a team. I'm not trying to single out just three guys. But the Clippers, three best players overall, I would say, over their careers, are combined 22-time All-Star selections, have a combined 20-time All-NBA selections, 11-time 11 eleven-time All-Defense, one-time MVP, 2 times Finals MVP, two-time Defensive Player of the Year's and two-time champions. And both those champions, Kawhi Leonard won in San Antonio, won in Toronto. So now, you guys got my entire spiel on the LA Clippers. 22 minutes of where I think Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Russell Westbrook will go with this team. I think they're all going to fit well together. I think Russell Westbrook is going to do great in this system. And even if he misses some shots, I think the Clippers fans will treat him better than the LA LA Lakers fans did. I think the LA Lakers fans just got too annoyed with the Lakers not figuring things out, and Russell Westbrook was an easy scapegoat for why there were problems and why that team is broken. They didn't have any shooting. They didn't have any depth heading into the season. They had Matt Ryan getting minutes at the beginning of the season because they didn't have enough money to pay guys in free agency. So they lost some guys in free agency, including Malik Monk, who ended up doing well now. While you know he's playing well in Sacramento with De'Aaron Fox. So Russell Westbrook, I'm not worried about as at, at all, and I'm as confident as ever. The Tyron Liu, head coach of the Clippers, will figure out the rotation. Even though he's been struggling with that all season, this is crunch time. 20 to 25 games left to go in the regular season. The Clippers right now are the fourth seed in the West, and there's no time. There's no time for them to continue to mess around. They've had a lot of stretches. In spurts during the season, where they were messing around too much and losing games in crunch time because they didn't have a backup center, and that was one problem that they always went small ball late in games because Zubots would come out of the game, whether it was foul trouble or they just liked the lineup that they had with Marcus Morris and Nick Batum at the four or five, with Kawhi landed out there as well. And the Clippers lost a lot of games because of that. I think if the Clippers got Mason Plumlee earlier, they probably would have won eight to ten games more, and they would have been probably the two or three seed in the West at this point. But now the Clippers are a new look team, adding Eric Gordon. Bones Highland, Russell Westbrook, and Mason Plumlee all within the last week. So now I'm going to make a jump from talking about the Clippers. and I'm going to talk about the NBA All-Star Game, talk about the NBA All-Star Game weekend. I apologize there for the 25 minutes, 24 minutes and 30 seconds about the LA Clippers. But I had to get that all out on Russell Westbrook since I feel like he's been a scapegoat in LA for the Lakers. I think he's going to thrive in this Clippers system where he's no longer going to be the guy getting all the blame. The Lakers... Obviously, had a lot more issues than Russell Westbrook in my eyes. And I think now with the within a system in L.A., with the Clippers, with a better coach and a better system with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, I think he's going to do better. So now I'm going to jump to the NBA All-Star Game, which Jason Tatum was the Kobe Bryant All-Star Game MVP. Played very well in the game. I think he had 55 points overall. Going to get his stats up just now in a second. Played very well. One thing that you did see in that All-Star Game was that there was no defense at all. And I think that's one thing that the NBA All-Star Game... Has to do better with is 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 figuring out a way to play better defense because there was just no effort at all on defense from either side. Team LeBron, Team Giannis, zero effort on either team by either team on defense, zero effort, and that's the reason that I feel like the NBA has to figure something out and find a way to make it more competitive. They have to, just like the NBA, just like the NFL had to figure out a way to change the way they would do in the Pro Bowl just to try to make it better and obviously engage fans, you have to alter the way the game's played. In the NFL, no one wanted to hit anymore in the Pro Bowl. But in the NBA, you can still play defense without getting hurt. You can still play defense without getting hurt. And that's why I was confused why it was like a layup line. It was like a layup line. Jalen Brown said it was a glorified layup line. He's right. Mike Malone, head coach of the Nuggets, said that was the worst basketball game he's ever seen. Stephen A. Smith of ESPN, Stephen A. said, there was no defense at all. None. He said it was like any average person off the street could step into the game make some plays. It wasn't like it was an NBA game because no one was playing defense. Besides LeBron James blocking SGA, Shane Gill, just Alexander at the rim on a dunk attempt, that was the only time that there was ever any defense in the game. Jason Tatum finished the game with 55 points, 10 rebounds, 6 assists, and 35 minutes of action. Jalen Brown played pretty well as well. In that game, 35 points, 14 rebounds, and 5 assists, and 25 minutes of action. Fourteen. team LeBron, team Giannis, Jason Tatum was on, 55 points, I said. Led them to a win, winning the game 184-175. to Winning the game by 9 points and outscoring team LeBron 59-49 to in the third quarter. That's where they got a lot of their momentum. Outscoring team LeBron by 10 points there and 7 points in the second quarter. So between the second and third quarter... Team LeBron was outscored by 17 points. So that was a big difference there for Team LeBron. They just put themselves in too much of a hole going into the fourth quarter. And even though they outscored Team Giannis by eight points, really really just could not pick up from their deficit. And look at overall in the game. There were just four free throw attempts overall in the game. Team Giannis was three or four from the free throw line. Team LeBron didn't even take a free throw attempt. That just proves there was no defense. Four free throw attempts total? When in the NBA, there's four free throw attempts every minute, it seems like, in NBA regular season games. There were just three blocks overall in the game, 88 points in the paint for Team Giannis, 118 points in the paint for Team LeBron. There were just seven total fouls in the game. Seven fouls, three blocks, and just four free throw attempts. So if that doesn't prove that there was no defense, besides Jason Tame going off for of 55 points and Team Giannis having... Tatum go for 55, Donovan Mitchell go for 40, with Team LeBron having two guys in 32 points or above. They had Brown LeBron score 35, Kyrie Irving scored 32, and Joe Allen scored 32. That just proves there was no defense. I think the NBA has to figure something out. It's really just a three-point contest for the most part. LeBron's team took 63, hitting 17 of them, shooting 28.3% from three, and the Team Giannis was 29 of 66 on three, shooting 43.9% from three-point range. Yes, Jason Tatum played great, but there was no defense at all in that game. 52, uh, 55 points, obviously, is very impressive. Obviously, he won the All-Star Game MVP, which is named after Kobe Bryant, his idol, so I'm sure he was psyched about that. But there was just no effort at all. And I think even last year, there was better effort. There wasn't great defense until the fourth quarter in last year's game. But this year, it was just it was just sad to watch, kind of tough to watch. And even though I didn't really get to watch much of it, since I was coming back from Vermont... Late on Sunday night, I didn't really get to watch too much of it, but I did watch a lot of the recap and the highlights. You could just tell. The guys were just in there, just, you know, driving down the lane, going for dunks. No one was contesting anything. No one was getting in the way at the rim. No one was getting in the way from the three-point line. Everyone was just shooting wide open shots and driving down the lane freely. It was just basically an open shoot around. Just this time, it actually counted. You know, they, they actually counted points. So something has to change. And Mike Malone's right. I think it probably was the worst pass game I've ever seen because it was zero defense at all. Zero defense at all. And yes, the 55 points of Tatum is impressive. Yeah, it's impressive. Don't get me wrong. But if you look at what he's going up against, I mean, he was basically just driving down the lane wide open. I mean, there there was really no competition at all. And that speaks to the competition that the NBA players probably agreed with, which probably came down to let's not play defense. We'll just take it easy. 'Cause that's what it seemed like. That's what it seemed like. And that's a problem, in my eyes at least. I think that's a problem. Because when you're not playing at all and you're not trying in the all-star game, why do you think a fan wants to watch just, you know, guys driving down the lane and dunking? Yeah, it's cool when, you know, you're doing it maybe against guys, maybe it's a little bit of competition, a little bit, you know, of, of spacing in the paint where, you know, people aren't really giving you as much space to drive down the lane. I don't think a fan really wants to see just Open dunks, open from half court. It wasn't really that exciting. I mean, yeah, when you get to watch a guy put up 55 points, that's cool. But you'd like to see a little bit of defense, a little bit of effort. Because just like Jason Tatum, just like Jalen Brown said, excuse me, it was a glorified layup line. One thing that the All-Star game did that was pretty cool was Team Giannis and Team LeBron did a live draft where they drafted the reserve players first and then drafted the starters after that with Damian Lillard going first overall out of the reserves. And then out of the start is, uh, Joel Embiid was the first overall pick going to Team LeBron. But I thought it was pretty cool the way they did it. Where you have Team LeBron getting the first pick, taking Joel Embiid. Then you got Giannis taking Tatum. LeBron taking Kyrie Irving. Giannis taking John Morant. Luka Doncic going to LeBron. Donovan Mitchell going to Giannis. Nikola Jokic going to LeBron. And then Laurie Makinen of Salt Lake, you know, playing for the Utah Jazz. This was in Salt Lake City. So Salt Lake City, uh, you know, fan, you know, crowd was obviously excited to see him play. He was the last pick of the draft, going to Team Giannis. But I thought it was cool that they, they did a live draft at 7.30 on TNT. I thought that was pretty cool. Live, right before the draft, the captains obviously come up and then end up taking, you know, the their picks and whoever they want. This is actually the first time Team LeBron lost. LeBron has never lost an All-Star game as a captain. He was 5-0 and heading into this year, and Team Giannis gets the best of him now, winning, obviously beating LeBron by nine points and handing LeBron his first loss in the All-Star game. As for Jason Tatum, he had a great season overall for the Celtics. Hopefully he keeps that momentum going into the All-Star, or after the All-Star break, that is. And one thing he got to play with was his head coach. Joe Mazzula was obviously the head coach of the Celtics going into this year as an interim. Now he's actually officially the head coach of the Celtics, getting a a deal done with them. He's now the head coach, so the interim tag is now taken off. And he was also the head coach of Team Giannis in the All-Star game on Sunday night, which is pretty cool. Mike Malone was the head coach for Team LeBron, and Missoula obviously got to coach Tatum, and that's probably part of the reason he got to play 35 minutes and got to take all those shots. But obviously it worked out for Tatum and Team Giannis getting the win. Uh, And now I'm going to talk about the NBA All-Star game festivities including the dunk contest, which I really didn't get to watch live. I got to watch the highlights, though. Mack McClung ended up up getting a win. And one thing about McClung that was impressive is that a lot of his dunks, he did on his first try. A lot of his dunks. First round, he had a combined two dunks, 99.8 points, which was the best in the first round. And then his two dunks in the final round, which he was going up against Trey Murphy, who I had winning going into the the All-Star game weekend. I had Trey Murphy winning that slam dunk contest, but Mack McClung did very well. He's a G League player, but stepped in, got the opportunity and shined, going 50 and 50 in his last two dunks, which was very impressive. And that's a guy that really doesn't really do too much in the G League. I mean, he's not a bad player, has some talent, but... He's a better dunker than he is, probably a scorer overall. And it's pretty impressive that he got to be in the NBA All-Star Game and, and, and got to participate in the festivities. Not the All-Star Game, he got to participate in the dunk contest during the All-Star Game weekend, representing the 76ers. But I feel like you just got to get better competition for that as well. But I understand why players don't really want to do the Sam Dunk Contest since they really want to risk injury. Yes, LeBron James could do it. Yes, John Moran could do it. Yes, Zion Williamson could do it. Yes, there's a ton of other players that could do it as well, like Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine. But I don't think a lot of guys want to risk injury. And that's probably part of the reason they won't see those guys do it. And that's why you see guys like Mac McClung, Jericho Sims, Trey Murphy, and Kenny Martin Jr. Four guys that aren't all-stars, that aren't superstar players, that aren't on really good teams right now fighting for you know big spots in the playoffs. I mean, Trey Murphy and the Pelicans, Pelicans having a decent year. They've been falling as of late. Same thing with the Knicks. They're a playoff team as of now. But these guys aren't superstars on their team, but the best players on their team. So it's okay if they were to do it and, you know, risk getting hurt. Obviously, no one wants to see anyone get hurt during the dunk contest, but you never see LeBron James and probably his second to third to last season in the NBA, maybe his fourth to last season in the NBA, risking an injury in a dunk contest. You're just not going to see that. Nor will you see a guy like Zion Williamson who's very injury-prone, participating in potentially letting himself get hurt in a dunk contest. Same thing with John Morin. He's had his fair share of ankle injuries, you know, rolling his ankle from going up and trying to make acrobatic dunks in games. You're not going to see him do that. Anthony Edwards, he's one guy you probably could see do it maybe. But considering that there's really no other competition, I don't really think any players really want to get involved with it. So see what they do next year, and maybe they'll try to change up the format, maybe try to get... You know, more stars involved trying to make it more exciting. But credit to Mac McClung. He obviously ended up doing well for himself. I think he won $100,000 for the All-Star game, uh, you know, in that weekend for winning the dunk contest. And I think that's right around his salary uh, in the G League as well. So he almost doubled how much money he's made or is going to make this season just by winning the dunk contest on Sunday night. So very impressive of him. 99.8 in the first round between his two dunks. And then 100 in the final round between his two dunks there. He had three dunks that were 50s and a 49.8. As for Trey Murphy, he really couldn't get uh, anything going Uh, in his first dunk. He ended with a 46.6 in his first dunk in the first round, 49.4 in his second dunk, which was better. And then his two dunks in the final round combined for 98 points. Obviously, it was not enough, though, to win it. Uh, but credit to Mac McClung for getting that down, done. It was very impressive what he did there. And obviously, uh, credit to him for going out there and balling out, even though he was a G League player. Went in there with no fear and ended up winning it. So obviously, that's a great feeling for him. Now I'm going to talk about the three-point contest. Going into this, I, I had Tyler Hero winning it. I thought Tyler Hero was going to ball out. But he didn't even qualify for the second round, which I was very shocked by. And credit to Damian Lewitt. He played very well at 26 points in the first round and 26 points in the second round, outscoring Buddy Hield. In the final round, 26-25, to 25. Tyrese Halliburton led all scorers in the first round with 31 in the first round of three-point contest, but only had 17 in the final round. Halliburton, as I said, was unround the first round, outscoring everyone by at least five points, but only had 17 points in the final round, losing to Buddy Hield and Damian LeWitt. Buddy Hield obviously has won a three-point contest before, one of the best three-point shooters in the NBA. But Damian Lillard was just locked in. 26 points in the first round, 26 points in the second round. And going into this, I mean, you see the field? Kevin Herter only had eight points in the first round. Yeah, he's had a pretty decent year shooting from three. He's had a good year shooting for the Kings. But Julius Randle being in there? Come on. Larry Mockinan being in there? Come on. I mean, these guys might have decent three-point percentages, you know, overall in games. But when you think NBA... Three point contest, you think of Ray Allen. You think of Steph Curry. You think of Clay Thompson. You don't think of Julius Randle. That's the thing. That's why I think the NBA has to figure something out there as well. I mean, they have to figure it all there. All Star game festivities. At least the three point contest you'll have stars or superstars like Damian Lillard competing it since there's really no injury risk there. But overall three point percentage in the NBA this year. Malcolm Brogdon's number one. He wasn't in it. 45.5% from three. Buddy Hill does lead the NBA in three-point field goals. Made on the air. But over on three-point field goal percentage, only one guy in the top ten participated. And that was Buddy Hill. He's eighth in three-point field goal percentage this year. So I'm not really too sure. Maybe Malcolm Brogdon, Isaiah Joe of OKC. Maybe Caldwell Pope. Maybe Luke Kennard. Maybe Alec Burks, maybe all those guys denied, maybe Joe Harris as well, maybe they denied the offer to try to play in the three-point contest. That's probably part of it, I'd imagine. But obviously, you want to see better competition in all three competitions. The skills competition, the three-point contest, and the dunk contest, and in the All-Star game. But thankfully, Damon Lillard ended up staying hot and obviously kept that interesting. I've always been a big fan of three-point contests, and I like Dame Dollar as well. Dame Doll does get hot, and obviously getting 52 points between those two rounds is very impressive. Outscoring, as I said, Buddy Hield, 26 to 25 in a thriller, winning, I believe it's his first three point contest. I believe it's his first one. Let me see here. Just want to make sure I'm right here. Yes, his first one. First one ever. So add that to his all his accolades, seven time all star. One-time All-NBA first team, four-time All-NBA second team, one-time All-NBA third team, was a rookie of the year and also part of the NBA 75th anniversary team. So that's my thoughts on the NBA All-Star Weekend. I do think they have to figure something out with the All-Star game. I just thought there was no defense at all. I thought the NFL did pretty good with altering their format this year. The Pro Bowl was split up between the AFC and the NFC still. But what they did was... They broke up the competition from competitions on Thursday and Sunday. On Thursday, precision, precision passing, which Derek ha won that for the AFC, getting 31 points. So that gave the AFC three points to start. Then there was a lightning round where the AFC won, beating Eli Manning, hitting him into uh, dunking him in the confetti. In the final round, Eli Manning ended up falling in or uh, getting hit with the confetti, 6 nothing. the AFC were up. And I'm just breaking down what happened in that just because I want to talk about how they altered the format. And then there was a longest drive, which was a golf tournament. Jordan Poirier ended up winning that for the AFC. And then to finish off Thursday night, there was the dodgeball tournament, which the NFC ended up winning, uh, beating the AFC in the final round. So they split it up by four competitions on Thursday. And then on Sunday, there was three flag football games, there was a best-catch competition, a move the chains competition, a grid gauntlet, and a kick-tack-toe tournament. And obviously the NFC ended up winning that, Eli Manning, and the NFC outscoring his brother Peyton in the AFC, 35-33. Credit to the NFC for winning the last game. Kirk Cousins coming back and leading the NFC down the field to win the game. They were down 21-15, ended up winning that game, 35-33 overall. Uh, winning that Flake football game, that third game. uh, And among all the competitions, the NFC ended up winning and outscoring the AFC overall, which uh, ended up totaling out to being, I believe it was still, let me see, adding up all the points. I think it was 35-33, actually. Yeah. I think it was 35-33 among all those points. So pretty impressive uh, stretch there. I think it was, let me see, 26 So each game was six points. So the NFC ended up winning uh, that uh, by a score, 35-33, to 33, winning in the second half of that. 35-33, pretty impressive. And as I said, Kirk Cousins, Kirk Cousins led them down the field, which was impressive. But I don't know. I mean, I feel like the NFL saw that there was no tackling involved. They said, all right, let's change what we're doing. And even though, I mean, the Pro Bowl still probably isn't going to get as many views as it would if it were to be a legit game with a tackling and everything— I just think the injury risk is too much, and that's probably part of the reason that the NFL had to change it. Because if you look at the NFL and the Pro Bowl last year, there was zero tackles. You couldn't even touch a quarterback. You tapped the quarterback, and it was a tack, it was a sack or a tackle. And in the NBA, they have to figure something out as well. I just thought the way they were doing things in years past in the NBA, where they were trying to change a format and trying to do it where it was the fourth quarter, and the teams are playing harder defense since it meant more for charity, and obviously meant more overall to the score of the game and who won i thought that was pretty cool but they really ditched that idea this year overall and went back to the no defense just like the nfl and the pro bowl did but i, th- I thought with the nfl did and the pro bowl was pretty interesting this year you had eli manning and peyton manning each coaching the afc and the nfc obviously with all those different competitions it was pretty cool as well and you also had different players from different teams all competing in different tournaments, whether it was the dodgeball tournament, the longest drive tournament, the best hands tournament, uh, or the best catch tournament it was called, which Amon Ross St. Brown outscored, Stefan Diggs in that. But I thought it was pretty cool the way they did everything. It was more engaging than it was in ES past. I think people looked at the Pro Bowl this you know, that weekend and said, oh, it's not going to be really anything to watch, which I didn't think it was really going to be great either. But I knew Eli Manning and Peyton Manning being involved in it. I thought it'd be something fun to watch. And that's why I thought, hey, it'd be something to watch for me. And I ended up watching it, obviously, ended up seeing the NFC win and saw Dexter Lawrence and Saquon Barkley both represent the NFC, which is pretty cool as well. And I obviously saw Eli Manning being the head coach of the NFC too. So I thought what they did was pretty cool. I thought the NBA with what they were doing with the NBA All-Star Draft, I that was pretty cool. But with the no defense, I thought that was just something that has to change. As for the dunk contest, Mac McClung winning, being a G League player and not really having much experience in the NBA, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, and I thought he really shined in the biggest moment. And he ended up making, you know, a lot of money on that. I think he ended up winning $100,000. Let me see what he gets for a prize. His career earnings before that was $100,000, and he banked $100,000 just winning the dunk contest, which is pretty cool. So for a guy that really didn't have much to play for and, you know, had a chance of winning... $100,000, $100,000, that, that's what the prize is for a player to win the dunk contest. He went in there and won it, and obviously made a name for himself. People know Mac McClung from you know, his days in college, but in his entire pro career heading into this point, he only had $106,000 earned, and he won $100,000 in just one night with four dunks, including three, being a perfect 50. So that was pretty cool. I thought he did well, and then obviously Dame Lewitt saved the three-point contest as well. Uh, but overall, the NBA All-Star game, Something has to change there. So now I'm going to move on. I talked about the NBA a lot. I talked about, obviously, the Clippers. Uh, I talked about Jason Tatum. And I was talked about the NBA All-Star game in the NFL Pro Bowl and how things have changed here. Now I'm going to move on to the NFL and give you my thoughts on the NFL offseason, which obviously now is underway, which you can now start franchise-taking players. That window just opened, I believe it was yesterday. So Saquon Barkley, Daniel Jones, two of those guys could potentially one of them one of them potentially could be franchise tag by the Giants. Only one of them can be. You can't franchise-tag more than two players or more than one player. So, Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones, the Giants have to make a decision on and they'll figure out what they want to do with those two guys. But according to reports yesterday, Daniel Jones is looking for $45 million per year. $45 million per year. Which that does seem like a lot of money. Which it is. $45 million a year is a lot for any player. I really only think Patrick Mahomes would be the only player I'd give $45 million to. Eh, maybe not. Maybe Joe Burrow, probably Trevor Lawrence in a couple of years as well. But I don't think I'd give many players $45 million. But that's just what the market is right now. There are 10 players making over $33.5 million. Nine players making over $35 million in average yearly uh, value. Kyle Amari is making $46.1 million per year. Deshaun Watson is making $46 million. Patrick Holmes is making $45 million. Russell Wilson making forty eight point five million, and then you have Aaron Rodgers getting fifty point two million dollars in average money per year. So that's five quarterbacks making over forty five million dollars. Then you have Josh Allen making forty three, Matt Stafford making forty, Dak Prescott making forty, Kirk Cousins making thirty five, Kurt Jared Goff making thirty three point five million dollars, topping out the top ten right there. Then after that, you have Carson Wentz getting thirty two million. Matt Ryan getting 30. Ryan Tannehill making 29.5. That's three quarterbacks. I mean, Jared Goff probably had a better season passing-wise overall than Daniel Jones, but also had a better run game, better offensive line, and better wide receivers than Daniel Jones had. But as it went, Ryan and Tannehill, Daniel Jones is better than all three of those quarterbacks. All three of those quarterbacks, and they're making between $29.5 million and $32 million in average value per year. So Dana Jones is going to get at least $35 million. I know I was called crazy a couple weeks ago when I came back from winter break, or probably about a month ago now, when the Giants beat Minnesota in the Wild cod round. I came back on that Sunday or Monday, I believe, it was, since it was a long weekend. I came back on that Monday night and went to watch the Cowboys game at the Circle about right near BC with a lot of my friends. It was Cowboys-Bucks, Wildcard cod uh, round between those two teams. Tom Brady's last game in the NFL. And I remember saying I think Daniel Jones is gonna get three years $105 million, $35 million per year. And that was called crazy by a lot of people. But if you look at it, nine quarterbacks making over $35 million. And that's not included, that's not including Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Jalen Hurts, and Lamar Jackson. Four quarterbacks, all that are guaranteed to get paid within the next year. And then you also added a guy that's probably gonna be paid by this time next offseason, Trevor Lawrence. So that's five quarterbacks that are gonna be making. Over thirty-five, probably forty million dollars per year, I'd say at least, probably around forty-five million dollars per year. So if you take all four of those guys, that means there'd be nine quarterbacks making over forty-five million dollars in average value per year. And then you have Josh Allen making forty-three, and Matt Stafford making forty, and Dak Prescott making forty. So you add in those four plays, that means there are twelve quarterbacks, twelve quarterbacks making over forty million dollars per year. You don't know think Daniel Jones? deserves to make around $40 million per year. I think $45 million seems crazy if you look at it overall. Yes, I think it looks crazy overall. But that is what the market is set at. The market is set for these guys to make $45 million. And that's the reason I think Daniel Jones will get paid. I think Daniel Jones is going to find himself getting a good payday. Because if you look at it, there are eight quarterbacks right now making over $40 million. There are nine quarterbacks making over $35 million, and soon to be four more of those adding in with Jalen Hurts, Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, and Justin Herbert all getting paid With Trevor Lawrence as well getting paid. That means there'll be five quarterbacks making guaranteed over $35 million per year. So Daniel Jones, if he gets $35 million per year and if he would have got the three years $105 million deal that I thought he'd get, he would have been the 14th or 15th highest paid quarterback in the NFL in average money per year. Which doesn't seem that crazy. That's just what the market is. Daniel Jones was an econ major at Duke. Very smart kid. He knows what the market's set at. He knows He knows, He knows. knows econ. He knows what he's valued at. He knows what the quarterback position should get in the NFL today. Especially for a playoff team. And what he did this year for the Giants. He knows what it's set at. And overall, all those quarterbacks I named, I would take Daniel Jones over over, over those guys in the top 10. So I'll just name them really quick. Rodgers, Wilson, Murray, Watson, Mahomes, Allen, Stafford, Prescott, Cousins, and Goff. Among the top 10 quarterbacks, they're getting over $33.5 million. It's really the top 11 since Goff's the 10th, but you know you have Prescott and Stafford tied for 8th. 7th, really. 7th and 8th. So among those guys making 35000000 million, I'll cut it off at Cousins. So over $35 million. I'd take Daniel Jones over every one of them, except for Patrick Mahomes. It sounds crazy. I know. Josh Allen and Daniel Jones... I like Daniel Jones more than I like Josh Allen. So I'm going to roll with Josh Allen. Might sound crazy. I don't care. I'm fine with, with saying that. Josh Allen may have better talent, may have better stats overall. But I like Daniel Jones more as a quarterback. And also, they got to the same position in the playoffs this year. And Josh Allen had a much better team around him. Josh Allen almost lost to the Miami Dolphins with Skyler Thompson as the quarterback. I mean, come on. I, I think Josh Allen and the Bills, I think they were a good team. But I do think they are overhyped, especially heading into this season. They were, I believe, the Super Bowl favorite. And obviously he didn't live up to the hype. But let's say I'll take let's say you'll take Josh Allen over Daniel Jones based off talent and based off his stats. Because yeah, stats are better than Daniel Jones. He had more touchdowns, obviously. Also more interceptions at the same time since he throws a little more. But let's say you take Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes over Daniel Jones. Are you gonna take Dak Prescott, Matt Stafford, and Kirk Cousins over Daniel Jones? I don't know. I mean it's up to you. I wouldn't. Are you gonna take Deshaun Watson over Daniel Jones? I wouldn't. Are you gonna take Kyler Murray over Daniel Jones? I wouldn't. Are you going to take Russell Wilson over Daniel Jones? Zero chance. Are you going to take Aaron Rodgers over Daniel Jones? Maybe if it's just based off one season. If just one and done, you're trying to win now. even though Rodgers does end up failing typically in the playoffs. He still, for the most part, puts together a good regular season, you know, combination of stats when he has a good wide receiver to throw to. So I think Daniel Jones will find himself making around $40 million. I think right now he's going to be valued around three years, $120 million, four years, $160 million. It might sound like a lot of money. Not all of that's gonna be guaranteed. As of now, I'd guess 72 million dollars will be guaranteed of that 140, with a lot of that being backloaded, probably with the Giants having flexibility, probably, or probably maybe front loading the first year, and then maybe the next couple of years be spread out, uh, depending on the Giants' cap situation, how they figure out, you know, what they're gonna spend on in this offseason, how they're gonna create flex, you know, cap space. But we'll see what they were to do. But I think Daniel Jones by this time next year, he will be probably the 13th or 14th highest paid quarterback in the NFL, considering Trevor Lawrence, Joe Burrow, Jalen Hurts, Lamar Jackson, and Justin Herbert will all be getting paid $38, $40 million plus in their next contracts. And rightfully so for Justin, for, Jay, uh, for Joe Burrow, Jalen Hurts, both those guys put together great seasons this year. Lamar Jackson obviously struggled to stay healthy. And then you have Justin Herbert, which I'm not the biggest Justin Herbert fan. I think he's a good quarterback, but I think he's overhyped as well. Uh, doesn't even have a playoff win in his career. Lost this year to the Jackson Jaguars. Choked that game away, which obviously was a collapse in offensive defense. I think Herbert's a good quarterback, but I don't think he's in the Joe Burrow, the Patrick Mahomes, the Trevor Lawrence category. I don't. I think, if, I think the NFL, those are your top three quarterbacks heading into the future. Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, and Trevor Lawrence. That's what I would take, at least. So... We'll see what happens to Daniel Jones. As of now, I think he gets around four years. I'd say four years 150. Right now, I'd say he gets around four years 150. That's just a guess. Getting 37.5 million dollars per year. Uh maybe they meet in the middle. I know he said he wants 45 million dollars per year. He just hired a new agent. Probably part of that being that he probably wants a little more money. The agent probably said he valued around 35 million. And he probably said, I want around forty-five. And I think the Giants probably value him around $35 million. I think they'll probably come to a consensus in the middle and he'll get around $38, $39 million dollars per year. As for Saquon Bach, I think the franchise take him, give him one year's $10 million, one year $10 million. If the Giants were to franchise take Dandre Jones, which I don't think they want to do, it would be a $33 million cap hit for this year with none of it being able to be, you know, none of it being uh, potentially flexible. You can't really flex a player that's on a, a franchise tag. Yeah, the Giants could transition tag him and then get less money, I believe, and a team would have to give up two first-round picks in order to get him, but I don't think that's a potential. I don't think any team really is going to give two first-round picks for him since you can really try to sign a guy and maybe try to draft a guy, and try to find a cheaper option than, than try to pay you know two first-round picks for a quarterback. Because the two first-round picks, you're trading for a quarterback and the transition tag. You might as well just trade overall and try to get you know a guy in a longer-term deal then the guy hasn't been signed yet, which we'll see. Maybe maybe Daniel Jones, that wouldn't be the case, but I don't think anyone's going to trade for him on a transition tag. But we'll see what happens to Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley. I don't think the Giants want to transition tag Daniel Jones since it's a $32 million cap hit, and they're going to have to figure out what they want to do in the offseason there, and and obviously have to create cap space. I think they have $46 million right now in cap space, but thirty-two that would be taken up by Daniel Jones. So I think Saquon Barkley, transition tag, Daniel Jones will get a long-term contract, and we'll see where the Giants go from there. As for the Patriots, I'm going to talk about them for a couple minutes now and talk about what they're going to do in the offseason. I think the Patriots' main priority is finding a wide receiver one. Obviously, going into the offseason, I think an offensive coordinator was a big deal. You get Bill, Bill O'Brien. That's great. Obviously, he's had some chemistry with Mac Jones at Alabama. Knows Bill Belichick very well. Obviously, worked with Nick Saban. Obviously, Bill Belichick and Nick Saban are very good friends as well. So you get a guy that is pretty good friends with Nick Saban, and obviously he was in that system at Alabama and, and flourished there. So obviously Bill Belichick's going to be excited about that. And then you get got a guy that has some experience with Mac Jones and hopefully be a guy that Mac Jones listens to. The Patriots right now have the fifth most cap space in the NFL at $37.8 million. They have around $38 million right now that they could obviously free up some more money and try to get you know, a bigger player in free agency. I think their biggest need is a wide receiver. I think you look at the Patriots cap space. You have Matthew Judon getting a $17 million cap hit, which is a stale. But then you got W. Henry and Hunter Henry. Johnny Smith, excuse me, and, and Hunter Henry getting $17 million $15.5 million. Those are your second and third highest cap hits on your, on your cap space. Your second highest and third highest cap hits are two tight ends, which Hunter Henry obviously has had some, some t- touchdown success for the Patriots and obviously had some production. But Johnny Smith getting 17 million, getting 7.63% of the cap is ridiculous. 14% of your cap is going to tight ends. 14%, which is way too much. I think the Patriots are probably going to try to keep their best wide receiver heading into this offseason Jacoby Myers. I think he'll get around 14 million dollars, Jacoby Myers. I value him around. I think he'll probably get, I would probably give him $12.5 million. I think I'll probably get maybe 14 in the open market. Maybe three is $42 million, what he'll get. I think that's what he'll probably get maybe for the Patriots if the Patriots want to keep him. But I think you need a wide receiver one. I think Jacoby Myers is a good wide receiver too. But the Patriots have to look for something that can stretch the field and help up Mac Jones. Whether you're a Bailey Jap- Zappi fan or a Mac Jones fan, the Patriots have to find a way to spread the field and go-, go get a wide receiver one. You look around the league, the best quarterbacks, they all have great wide receiver ones to throw to. Joe Burrow has Jamal Chase. And Higgins. And also Tyler Boyd is a good wide receiver too. Josh Allen has Stephon Diggs. Aaron Rodgers for years had Devontae Adams. Matt Stafford and his success in 2021 and winning the Super Bowl in 2022. Cooper he had. You need a top receiver if you want to be successful in the league, in the NFL today. You need a top receiver. And that's what the Patriots are missing. You're missing a top receiver and you're missing the offensive coordinator and stability in the offensive staff. Because if you look at it, Joe Judge was not getting it down, to neither was Matt Patricia. And even though they probably set up to fail, I feel like going into this season getting a new offensive system when Mac Jones did pretty well, you know, throwing for 22 touchdowns this rookie season. And then going into this offseason, losing Josh McDaniels to the Las Vegas Raiders, becoming the head coach there. And then... Starting a new system and trying to use the Shanahan system, I just think the odds were against Mac Jones. And obviously, yeah, he has some character issues probably, which I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think he's a bad guy. I just think he wants to win. And by character issues, I mean he's not really listening to the coaches since he's probably frustrated with the new system since there's obviously a lot to learn, the Patriots system overall. And then you add in a whole new dimension in the Patriots system with it being the Shanahan system. So we'll see what they go get. But I think the Patriots probably have to go get a wide receiver in the open market. Maybe they go trade for DeAndre Hopkins, which I don't think really is, which really is likely. DeAndre Hopkins has, I believe, a $30 million cap hit this year, which that would be a lot to try to move. But maybe they try to go get a guy in the open market, which I think that's a Patriots' biggest need. Obviously, you need some help in the offensive line too. That's another need. But if you look at the Patriots' season overall last year, the defense played pretty well. It was just, it was just you know missing weapons, at the receiver position, they obviously had a good running back in Ramondre Stevenson. What's going to happen with Damian Harris, I'm not really too sure. What's going to happen with Mac Jones, I'm not really too sure. Either. I think they'll roll with Mac Jones one more year. I think that's really the best decision. I don't think you really should give up on Mac Jones just after one bad year. Just like even though Zach Wilson played very bad for the Jets, we you have a second overall pick in the 2021 draft. you got to give them at least one more season. At least one more season. We'll see what happens there, and, and obviously the Jets will have a decision to make there, but I'm excited to see what happens for the Pages this offseason. Since Bill Belichick, who knows how many years he has left. Maybe two or three more seasons. We'll see what he has left. But he's, he's obviously going to want to win, and he's obviously going to want to surround his team with winning pieces. And obviously being the GM, he really hasn't made the best decisions in the first round, but the Pages have the 14th overall pick. What's he going to do with that? Draft a wide receiver? Draft offensive line? Draft a pass rusher? I mean, the Patriots could go a million ways, which pass rusher isn't really the biggest need with Matt Judon obviously having a really good year this past year. But maybe you go cornerback. Maybe you go wide receiver. Maybe you go offensive line. I mean, there's a lot of avenues this Patriots team could take. Or they could just take the, the same avenue they always take. They always trade down. That's just the Patriots specialty is trading down every single draft. The Patriots love trading down. And that's likely. I mean, that could be a potential possibility in this year's draft as well. So we'll see what the Patriots choose to do. But I'm excited to see what this Patriots offseason looks like. I think they'll probably go get a couple pieces on the offensive line, go get another cornerback, probably get another safety as well, maybe get another linebacker and probably add on their offensive system with a couple wideouts, maybe one wide receiver one, which I think is desperate in today's NFL. You need a guy that you can throw to. Look at what Trevor Lawrence looked like this past year with Christian Kirk, who was a wide receiver 2-3 slash in Arizona, gets a high payday in Jacksonville to go to the Jacksonville Jaguars. And Trevor Lawrence had his best season. Obviously, he only played two seasons, but he was a lot better than he was his rookie season. And that factored in going to get a wide receiver one, a playmaker in Christian Kirk. And part of that is forecasting. You've got to see Christian Kirk and say, okay, he's not really getting utilized well in Arizona as the wide receiver two slash wide receiver three. Let's bring him into Jackson. Let's see what he can do. The Patriots might have to bank on that. Just like that. some team might bank on Jacoby Myers being a wide receiver two on the Patriots but being a wide receiver one on their team. The Patriots might have to go out and look at the wide receiver market and say, okay, let's go get a guy in this offseason. Let's go get a wide receiver one or potential wide receiver two that could be a wide receiver one for us. Would you look at wide receivers in the open market this offseason? You have Jacoby Myers, which let me get the free agent market completely open here. I want to you know just make sure I get it down. But you look at what the Patriots could do they could trade for a Guy with DeAndre Hopkins. I don't really see that as likely. T. Higgins potentially could be moved by the Cincinnati Bengals. I don't really see that being likely, but there's a potential possibility there. Juju Smith schuster is a free agent. Odell Beckham Jude is a free agent. Michael Thomas, I believe, is a free agent. Alan Lazad's a free agent. Paris Campbell's a free agent. I mean, the Pages could go multiple ways. It could go get just go get a couple of wide receiver twos and see how that works. But I don't think it's worked for Mac. I think Mac deserves to get a wide receiver one. And even if Mac isn't the guy. The next guy you bring in would come in to assist him with a wide receiver, one and hopefully a better offensive line with the Patriots. Hopefully, you know, looking to try to make moves there and try to, you know, build upon their offensive line this season. I think you have to build around Mac Jones, give him one more season, just like the Jets have to give Zach Wilson one more year. Whether or not the Jets want to bring in a guy like Derek Carr, Lamar Jackson, or Jimmy Garoppolo, that's fine. I think if you bring in a guy like Lamar Jackson, I don't think Zach Wilson has any future with the Jets. But you bring in Zach or Derek Carr to work with Zach Wilson, or you bring in Jimmy Garoppolo and sign him to a one year or two year deal, there's a potential possibility that Zach Wilson's still a Jet this time, you know, or six months from now by the start of the season. But you bring in a guy like Lamar Jackson, I don't think there's any chance Zach Wilson's a Jet. I think he'd be moved right away. And the Jets would get, you know, whatever they can for him back. I think he's valued around a third or fourth round pick. That might seem high to some people, but I think you could get a third or fourth round pick for Zach Wilson right now. As for the Ravens, if they were to trade Lamont Jackson, which I think they're going to franchise take him at the very least, I think they could probably get two first-round picks and a second-round pick from Lamont Jackson. Maybe a third-round pick. I value Lamont Jackson at two first-round picks and maybe a second-round pick. With one of those first-round picks being a top one in the CS draft, maybe being top 10 to top 15. Which appears at the 14th overall pick in the CS draft. But I don't think they'd ever make a move for Lamont Jackson. But you never know at the end of the day. But I think the Jets are going to go try to make a move for either Aaron Rodgers, Derrick Howard, J- J- Jimmy Garoppolo. The Raiders are going to go try to get either Jimmy Garoppolo or Aaron Rodgers. And we'll see what the 49ers do. I know they said they might roll with Brock Purdy since he had a pretty good season, but I think there's still a potential possibility they bring in a guy as well. Maybe the New Orleans Saints actually bring in Derek Howard. They've had a couple of visits with them now. Maybe the Saints bring in Derek Carr. Maybe the Tampa Bay Bucs are going to get one of these guys. I mean, there's a lot of potential possibilities with this NFL offseason. I'm excited to see where things go. I'm excited to see where things end up and where players go. Because I think this offseason, there's going to be a lot of movement among quarterbacks, which I already named Derek Carr, and I already named uh, Lamar Jackson and Aaron Rodgers and Jimmy Garoppolo. But there's some other pieces in there as well. Jimmy uh, Justin Fields could be traded from the Chicago Bears. They're talking about that being a possibility. Matt Ryan could be on the move, which I think he's... Still got a big cap hit on the Colts this year, but I think I think he could potentially be cut or traded, which I don't really know how much he has left in the tank, but you know we'll see. Daniel Jones, I don't think he's going to leave the Giants. Who knows what he'll get in the open market if the Giants were to let him go, which I don't think there's any chance the Giants let him go, but you obviously have to keep that in mind. There could be a team like the New York Jets, which I was listening to Tiki and Tandy today on WFAN Radio in New York. They were saying that the Jets are really just a quarterback away. And Daniel Jones could be that piece. And they were saying Daniel Jones, even though he's a great quarterback, could be more valuable to the Jets since they're a closer team to winning than the Giants are. And that's why the Jets could try to, you know, give up more in potential trade, assign and trade with the Giants and the Jets, which I don't think that's potential. I don't think the Giants are going to trade them. I think the Giants have signed Daniel Jones to maybe three years, four years, getting maybe $38 million per year. That's what I would give Daniel Jones, giving him around 70 to $75 million in guaranteed money and maybe making the last year or two being an option. Maybe the last year of that four-year deal, if you give him a four-year deal, making that fourth year an option that the Giants would have flexibility if they, weren't, they were to want to move him in, in the coming future. You never want to be left in a Russell Wilson situation or a Deshaun Watson situation where you're giving a guy $49 million to or $54 million on the cap and you really want to move him, but you can't because you gave him five to six years guaranteed. Just about fully guaranteed for both those guys. I believe Deshaun Watson was fully guaranteed and then you had Russell Wilson getting about almost fully guaranteed, if not all guaranteed, which I'm going to get Russell Wilson's contract out here just to get make sure I get it right. But that's the thing. $161 million of $242 million guaranteed for Russell Wilson. So you never want to be left in one of those situations. That's why I think the Giants might give Daniel Jones a three-year fully guaranteed deal, its fourth year being an option for the team with potential flexibility to move him if things were not to work out. But TK were right. I think Daniel Jones is worth it. I think he's going to get around $40 million, and I'd be fine with it. Four years, 160, with maybe $75 million guaranteed. That's what I would value him at right now if I was the GM of the Giants. That might seem like too little to some. That might seem like too much to some. Probably more people think it's too much than too little. But there might be some that say, you know, $40 is what the market's set at. That's what it is. The market is set right now for a starting quarterback in the NFL to make $40 million. That's just a reality. And why would Daniel Jones not make that? He had the highest quarterback rating in any single game in the NFL this season. Also had the highest passer rating, which was a different game than he had the highest quarterback rating. He also had the highest passer rating in any single game in the NFL this season. Adding in 22 touchdowns with just 5 picks, 15 passing touchdowns, 7 rushing touchdowns. 700 rushing yards to go along with. 22 touchdowns overall. And just five interceptions. I believe three turnovers. He cut down his turnovers a ton. His offensive line still wasn't great. I think it was around 30th ranked offensive line. Let me see. NFL ranked OL. I still believe he had, I think it was the 30th offensive uh, line ranking. Let me see. I just want to make sure I got that right overall. But... He also had mediocre wide receivers. I mean, he's throwing to Isaiah Hodges, who was a practice squad wide receiver in the Bills up until Week 10. He's throwing to Richie James, who was the sixth wide receiver in San Francisco. He's throwing to Darius Slayton, who was the sixth or seventh wide receiver in the depth shot heading into the preseason. And then you had Wanda Robinson tear ACL. You had Sterling Shepard tear his ACL. And you had Kadarius Tony get traded to the Kansas City Chiefs. So there were a lot of things going wrong around Daniel Jones. But one thing that Daniel Jones, Saquon, we did, they took all the negative criticism around them this season and they balled out. That's why I would sign both of those guys to new deals. And we'll see what the Giants end up doing. We'll see what the Giants end up doing and what avenue they were to go. And I'm excited to see where things end up for the Giants. I really am. So one last thing I want to close with now after the NFL talk, talking about the Giants and the Patriots and you know movement around the NFL, which I think next week will be my first NFL mock draft. I'm going to give a mock a mock first round uh Draft. I'm going to give probably you know the top first you know 15 picks, maybe, uh, give some insight into those. Maybe I'll do four or five before the draft in April and update you guys every week or two. But I'm gonna talk about the MLB and talk about the Red Sox really quick. Uh, because by the time I get back on index Tuesday night, the Red Sox will have already played three uh, preseason games, three spring training games. They open up their spring training schedule on Friday. Versus the Northeastern Huskies. And then we'll be playing their first MLB spring training game against the Atlanta Braves on Saturday at 105. Playing the Tampa Bay Rays on Sunday at 105. The Minnesota Twins at 105 on Monday, February 27th. And the next Tuesday, which I'll be live on air for this game, at 640, they'll be playing the Miami Marlins uh, for that game, which is pretty cool. Uh, considering, you know, it's a night game. A lot of those games during the preseason uh, for the Red Sox spring training, a lot of those are day games. So it'd be cool to have a night game there. But I'll talk about the Red Sox really quick and how spring training's been going. Chris Sale threw the other day. They said he looked pretty good and felt pretty good. He should be ready for the regular season, which that's one thing the Red Sox haven't heard. Chris Sale hasn't started an opening day game for the Red Sox in, I believe it was 2019. I think 2019 was the last time Chris Sale... Started an opening day, and I want to make sure I get that right. But I believe it was 2019, I think Native Valley is 2020, 2021, and 2022. Since Chris Sale was hurt in all three of those seasons, so Chris Sale started in 2018 and 2019 for the Red Sox as the opening day starter and has not made an opening day start since 2019. And if you look at Chris Sale's stats overall, he hasn't been able to stay healthy, and that's that's one thing that the Red Sox need. The Red Sox need Chris Sale to stay healthy. I don't think he's going to be the best pitcher in the league like he once was. But if you look at his stats since 2019, since the 2019 season ended. So from 2020 to 2021 to 2022, of the last three seasons, he's made just 11 appearances, 11 stats, with a 5-2 record, 3.17 ERA, with 13 walks to 57 strikeouts, 53 57 strikeouts to 13 walks for, uh, I believe it is, 4.38 strikeouts per walk, which is pretty good. And 48 in the third innings pitch, giving up 50 hits and 17 earned runs. And uh, also uh, hitting five batters in that stretch. But that's the thing with Chris Sale. He can't stay healthy. Only 11 starts over the last three seasons. 11 starts over the last three seasons. That's why you can't tr- trust him. The last time he's made over 25 starts was 2019. And he made zero starts in 2020. Nine starts in 2021 and just two starts in 2022. And there was a lot of hype around him coming back in 2022. And the Red Sox were just starting to turn a corner and everything was going right. And the Red Sox were looking like they were going to make a run. And then Chris Sale takes a line drive off the hand, off the bat of Aaron Hicks in a game against the Yankees. And that ended his season. And obviously he had the biking incident as well. And Chris Sale just really can't stay healthy. he fell off a bike and hurt his wrist. And then also took a ball back off his hand in that game against the Yankees, and that also, you know, both of those ended this season. So we'll see what happens with Chris Sale and where things go, but uh, obviously taking that line drive off the hand was not going to be, uh, you know, it didn't leave him any room to come back last season. So you really can't go into this season with any expectations. But as of now, he will be the Red Sox' number one starter, and we'll see what happens there. I'm excited to see what the Red Sox look like in the preseason. As of now, I believe Masataki Ishida will be starting left. It'll be Adam Duvall, who they just recently uh, signed in a deal. I believe he was with the Miami Marlins last year. Uh, He will be coming over and being the Red Sox starter uh, in center field, uh, which would be pretty cool uh, considering, you know, the Red Sox could use another power bet. Last year for the uh, Miami Marlins, he had – or Atlanta Braves was. He played for Miami in 2021. The uh, Atlanta Braves, uh, he had 12 home runs. In, 12, in 2022 with 36 RBIs and 213 as a batting average. But if you look at what he did in 2021 overall, he struggled in 2022 for Atlanta in 86 games. He also, you know, battled some injuries. In 2021 between Miami and Atlanta, he had 38 home runs and 113 RBIs with a 228 batting average. It was also the gold glove winner that year. So he brings a better glove to center field than Jarrett Duran, even though I haven't given up on Jared Duran. He also brings the power. Even though last year wasn't his best power numbers, I think he can get that back. Hopefully, Alex Cork Alex can help him with that. Then in right field, you have Alex Verdugo. So, from left to right in the outfield, just repeat. You have Mastaki Yoshida, who the Red Sox just signed from Japan. You have Adam Duvall, who the Red Sox just signed a free agency from the Atlanta Braves. And then you have Alex Verdugo, who has recently just talked about looking for a new deal, a new extension in right field. And he's the only lasting piece, really, besides Connor Wong, in that deal with the Los Angeles Dodgers for Mookie Betts, with obviously Gina Downs getting DFA'd this offseason. At third base, you have Rafael Davis, obviously got his long-term extension, the biggest uh, contract in Red Sox history, and obviously uh, the biggest High and Bloom is signed as a Red Sox president of baseball operations as well, the chief baseball officer, I should say. At shortstop, you have Kika Hernandez, which, I mean, who knows, you know, how long that'll last since, you know, Trevor Story probably won't be back until later in the season. If that, I mean, who knows what you're going to get out of him, but it doesn't look like Trevor Story will be back at all. That's another guy you really can't expect much from. You can't expect anything from Trevor Story. Just can't stay healthy. Just can't stay healthy. At second base, you'll probably have uh, Christian Arroyo, I'd imagine. And then at first base, we Tristan Costas. And then your DH will be Justin Turner with Reese McGuire doing the catch-in, probably on opening day for Chris Sale. So we'll see what the Red Sox look like. But I believe the batting will go Yoshida, Hernandez, Devis, Turner, Duvall, Verdugo, Casas, Arroyo, Maguire. McGuire. That's just my guess as of now. If I was picking, though, I would probably go Yoshida. I would go Yoshida. I, I don't want to go Yoshida, Verdugo, Devis, because that's three left-handed bats in a row. But, yeah, that's tough. I don't think you really go lefty, lefty, lefty. I think that would be too much for the Red Sox. I, I don't think you really have lefty, lefty, lefty to be one through three. So I'd probably go Yoshida. Maybe I don't really know if they're too good. I mean, at the end of the day, I think this Red Sox lineup is going to be you know, tough. I think I'm more worried about the Red Sox hitting and getting runs than I am worried about their pitching. I think that their, their rotation would be actually decent. Chris Sale, Corey Klubin, Nick Pavetta, James Paxton, Garrett Whitlock. I think all four of those guys would be decent. But you look at that lineup, it'll probably be Yoshida and Hernandez and Devis being the top three in the lineup. But if I would pick, I'd probably go Yoshida. I guess Duvall, uh, I probably wouldn't go there. Maybe Turner. I'd probably go Yoshida, Turner, Verdugo, Devis, Duval, Casas, Arroyo, Maguire. And the, or Hernandez actually has to be in there somewhere. I'd probably go Keke Hernandez at the 8. And then Arroyo at 7, Hernandez at 8, and Reese Maguire at 9. I don't think Kika Hernandez had a great year at all. He's really that great of a hitter. I think he was really just overrated just based off one playoff stretch. I never really never was the biggest fan of him. Was never the biggest fan of him. I don't think he should be the two-hitter in the lineup, but considering you can't go lefty, lefty, lefty to start out in the top three hitters, I guess it makes sense to have a righty in there so it goes lefty, righty, lefty, righty to start out in your lineup. So for Dugo being the five-hitter, it wouldn't be a bad thing. Wouldn't be a bad thing. But I think that two-hitter probably could change around and we'll see what the Red Sox end up going with. But as of now, I'd imagine it'll probably be Hernandez as the two-hitter even though that wouldn't be ideal in my eyes, but Justin Turner's probably a better cleanup hitter than he is. A two-hitter, and Alex Verdugo, I think, should be the two-hitter, but you can't have lefty, 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 since I don't think the Red Sox want to go with that, and you don't really see that in baseball ever nowadays. So we'll see what the Red Sox choose to do. I'm excited to see where they go uh, you know, in, in the future with this lineup. Uh, obviously, there's still a month until opening day, so we'll see what the lineup looks like uh, from now. But I'm, seeing, I'm excited to see the Red Sox go. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, them in their first preseason game. This will be Friday versus Northeastern. I'm excited to see who Northeastern plays in that game. I'm excited to see who they pitch. Northeastern just won two of three games this past weekend. Uh, They played uh, this past weekend. They played uh, Greensboro, UNC Greensboro, I believe it was, uh, winning two of three games, which was awesome, uh, starting out the season on a high note, Uh, winning two of three games, winning on Friday, 11 to nothing, losing 7 to 6 on Saturday, and then winning – Game three, the rubber match on Sunday at UNC Greensboro, 12-9. They had a pretty good weekend from Mike Sorota. Mike Sorota played very well for the Northeastern team. Had on-base percentage in those three games. 6.67 was his on-base percentage. 750 second percentage, drawing six walks, including a hit batsman. Six walks and hits batsman. So he reached base seven times between uh, you know, hit a hit batsman and a walk. Uh, so seven times out of 15 played appearances, he reached base uh, with um, you know, either a walk or a hits battle. And that also was uh, three, of, three of eight at the plate, scoring six runs with a double, a triple, four RBIs, six total bases, uh, and, and adding in um, as well uh, a 14-17 OPS and a 375, 375 average. Jimmy Solomon is a CAA uh, Hitter of the Week, I believe, uh, this past week. He's a transfer from UMass Lowell. This past weekend, he had 4.17 with an 11.29 OPS in three games played. He was 5 of 12 at the plate with the 4.17 batting average, a 6.67 snugger percentage, adding in a 4.62 on base percentage with five hits, three runs, and also adding in uh, four RBIs. Mike Sarrode had four RBIs as well this past weekend. So those are two guys to keep your eye on in that re- in that Northeastern lineup against the Red Sox on Friday. I'm excited to see Mike Sarrode. I think he's going to be a top draft pick in the 2024 MLB draft ever since I saw him play. Last year, the first game I saw him play last year, I believe it was against Bryant mid-March last season at uh, Northeastern's Freeman Friedman, Diamond, in Brookline. I thought he was going to be a top pick in the MLB draft in 2024. Right away when I saw him play, I saw all five tools. I saw a play that can hit for power, hit for contact. I saw him steal bases. I saw him make great plays over the course of the season at Senna. I saw him... Hit for power, as I said, gets on base, has a good eye at the plate, can steal bases as well, and has a good glove and a really good arm. I saw everything you need in a first-round pick in Mike Sorota, and I also see a leader as well. He's a young player, but that northeastern lineup was not the same without Mike Sorota in there last year. So I'm excited to see what he does the rest of the season in northeastern baseball. As I said, they start out the season two and one with uh, Wyatt Scotty going on Friday, going uh, five scores in game, giving up four hits, five strikeouts, three walks, giving up just one double. Uh, four hits he gave up, three of them being singles, one double. He did hit a batter as well with a 1.4 whip in those uh, five innings. Very a good outing for him. Uh, did get the win as well, was 1-0 in that game. So very impressive starting season for him. I'm excited to see him who Northeastern pitches, whether or not they go with one of the legit starters and try to go – you know, with the widget started try to beat the Red Sox, or they try to throw in just a starter, just to you know, uh, you know, dump a guy in there and give a guy an opportunity. That's you know, in the back end of the rotation, rather than starting a guy that they're going to probably have to pitch on Saturday when they have a doubleheader. I believe uh, 11 a.m. and 2:30, they'll be playing against Indiana State on Saturday, uh, February 25th, which so is a day after that game on Friday, playing the Red Sox. We'll play two games against Indiana State on Saturday, and then will also play on Sunday versus Indiana State as well. Indiana State is 2-1 and one on the year, losing to Iowa to begin the year, but just won their last two games against Florida Gulf Coast in Quinnipiac, winning both those games 6-1 to one and 8-7, to seven, respectively, beating Florida Gulf Coast just today, actually, at 2 p.m., 8-7. Uh, to seven. So we'll see how they do in that game. They actually play tomorrow at Miami, at the University of Miami, uh, at 6 p.m. So see what Northeastern pitches on Friday. As I said, I'm excited to see what Mike, what Mike Cerrone and that Northeastern team has in store for this season. I'll probably do a podcast upload about Northeastern baseball overall, maybe even BC baseball too. Uh give you guys my thoughts on them and where the season, uh, where I think each, each of those teams will go this season. As for BC baseball, I'll just give a quick update on them. They did win two of their three games this weekend against Pepperdine in California, Pepperdine, they play in Malibu, California. So Northeastern uh, was playing at UNC Greensboro on the road, playing in warmer weather. Warmer weather. And then you also had BC traveling to California, playing warmer weather uh, there in Malibu, California, losing the first game. The open nine to nothing against Pepperdine. They couldn't really get anything going on defense. I mean, not offense at all. Uh, I think they had four hits in the game. were shut out, obviously losing that game nine to nothing, which isn't a great way to start the season. Uh, but overall, recovered very well in that Saturday game, winning 3 to nothing, and then winning 18-6 in that Sunday game. Very impressive finish for that BC baseball team. They had four runs in the second inning and also had eight runs in the fourth inning, which was their biggest inning uh, of the game, having 16 total hits in the game, had zero errors errors, and also pitched very well. Sean Hodd got the start for them, did give up five earned runs with two strikeouts um, and two walks. But after that, the bullpen only gave up one run in the final seven innings pitched, giving up just five hits and striking out ten batters over the next five innings uh, and also giving up uh, just one earned run. So very impressive. And also walked, uh, walking only three guys the bullpen in the last five innings. So very impressive finish there for the BC baseball team. Uh, they got a lot of offensive production out of Cole Mercado. who was 4 of 6 in that game with four RBIs. Mercado also had, um, I believe, a run scored. Yes, a run scored as well. Uh, and then they also got uh, a home run out of Cam Larry's first of the season and Barry Walsh as well. Uh, both those guys uh, were very productive in that game. Cam Larry was 2 of 4 with two runs scored, or 1 of 4 with two RBIs uh, and two runs scored, um, also adding in a walk. And then you also had, uh, as I said, the other home run was Barry Walsh, who was. 3 of 5 in that game. Probably the best offensive player besides Col Mercado. 3 of 5 in that game with 4 RBIs and a walk. He was 4 of 5 um, or 4 of 6, that is, in plate appearances in reaching base. Um, so that's pretty impressive. Uh, and he also had a double as well. So hopefully BC baseball stays um, hot heading into next weekend. Uh, they were 2-1 and one this past weekend. They will be playing on Friday against Bucknell in Charleston, South Carolina, before playing Canisius College on Saturday in Charleston, Carolina, and then playing Rutgers as well on Sunday. So that's a three-game stretch, playing each, each of those teams, Bucknell, Canisius, and um, Rutgers, one game each. And then they'll play Kennesaw State for a three-game stretch, March 3rd, March 4th, and March 5th, next weekend, not this coming weekend, but the weekend after this following weekend, uh, two weekends away, actually, that would be. Um, they'll be playing them at Kennesaw State in Georgia. They're 2-1 and one on the year, Kennesaw State winning uh, their last two games, beating New Orleans 10-1 and. Uh, eight to four in the last two games. So we'll see where uh, Northeastern based on BC Basel ends up this season. Both those teams obviously we'll see where they end up. And I'm gonna give a quick podcast upload on both those squads and see where they were to go uh, in the future. I give predictions for the season. But anyways, that will conclude this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. Before I finish, as always, gonna give a few quick shout-outs. Shout out to the Keith family. Thank you guys both so much for listening. I appreciate you guys always listening in and having your insight always means the world to me. And having you guys always, you know, let me know you're listening uh, means more, more than words can describe. So thank you. Uh, quick shout out to the Loftus family as well. Thank you guys always listening in. Thank you to Auntie Lisa. Thank you to my uncle as well, the Sports Encyclopedia, Frankie. Thank you so much for listening in. Having your sports thoughts and your takes uh, does mean a ton to me, and I'm excited uh, to have you back on here again soon. We'd love to have you on maybe next week. Uh, we'll be in touch about that. But. Thank you so much for always listening in as well. You're one of the biggest fans of the radio show and it uh, does mean the world to me. So I appreciate that. Um, and shout out to my family, my parents, and my siblings. Thank you, guys for, thank you guys for always listening in. Shout out to the sports guru as well. Sports guru Mike Curley, we need a return from him uh, back on the podcast at some point. He hasn't been on for a few weeks. So hopefully, the sports guru Mike Curley will be back on in the next week or two. Maybe with the sports encyclopedia next week. Uh, we'll see where things go. Um, I think that's my nickname. My Uncle Frankie, the Sports Encyclopedia. Um, no, it's the Sports Aficionado. There it is. There it is. I got it right. The Sports Aficionado. Um, I got that right. The Sports Encyclopedia is Paul from Southie. And then you got the Sports Aficionado, Frankie. Um, so hopefully I have all of you guys back on within the next week. And hopefully I have uh, Brian as well. Uh, as I said, shout out to the Keith family. Thank you guys for always for listening in. Hopefully I have you guys all call in and talk anything sports from the Bruins, Celtics, Red Sox, Patriots. We can talk everything. I'm sure I'm going to be even more uh, Patriots-focused over the next few weeks with the offseason and free agency beginning pretty soon. So. I'll keep you guys updated. I'll be back live on air next Tuesday night, February twenty eighth, from seven to eight p.m. The Red Sox will be playing at six forty against the Miami Marlins at that time. Maybe I'll give you guys an update on that on that game live, and then also talk about um, what happened in the Red Sox first three preseason games uh, and those spring training games against MLB teams. I also talk about the Red Sox playing against Northeastern and what happened in that game. As I said. One guy to keep your eye on is Mike Sirota. He can do everything uh, that you need in a first-round pick. and I'm excited to see what he does for the Northeastern Huskies and how Northeastern does uh, this season. Anyways, thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it, and hope you guys have a great rest of your night. I'll see you guys next Tuesday night on WZBC AM Sports Radio. As always, it means the world to me, and shout-out to everyone for listening in. I appreciate it. Hope you guys have a good one. Stay safe, stay well, and take care. I'll see you guys next Tuesday night.